book of Romans, chapter 16. Sunday mornings we've been studying the book of uh, Romans, however intermittently uh, recently, but uh, we'll pick things up in verse 17. If you're with us this morning and you are without a Bible, just flag one of these guys coming up the aisles right now. They'll put a Bible in your hand marked to our passage for your convenience. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. I am working on a stopwatch here. I do time myself up here. Well, I can't get it to work. Oh, boy. We'll order in pizzas at noon. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'll watch the other clock. I have two clocks here. Verse 17. Paul writes, and he says, Now I urge you, brethren, know those who cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all, therefore I am glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, uh, Susipater, my countrymen, they greet you. I, uh, Tertius, also wrote this epistle. Who wrote this epistle? Greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church greets you. Erastus, the uh, treasurer of the city, greets you. And uh, Quartus, a brother. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word to turn to. We are never cease to be grateful to be able to open up uh, the Bible. And in the midst of this great war that goes on week by week and day by day uh, in the attack for uh, victory and dominance of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, we are grateful for your word and being able to turn to it and to know that this is always the truth, it never shifts on us, that we have no desire to make it into uh, our own image, Lord, but desire to be conformed by it. And so, Father, we pray the prayer of our Savior and ask that you would sanctify us by your truth this morning. Your word is truth. And we ask for this work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In reading the closing two chapters of the book of Romans and Paul's letter to the church there, it appears that Paul determines almost to repeatedly end the letter and before then continuing to write just a little bit more. It's almost as if he doesn't want the letter to come to an end. Uh, and if that was the case, then uh, I, it's certainly a sentiment that I share with him. He seems to bring the letter to an end with a benediction in chapter 15, uh, verse 13. Uh, and then once again in chapter 15, uh, verse uh, 33. Uh, he'll ultimately do it finally and, and completely in the final verses of, of chapter 16. The last time we examined uh, Paul's personal greetings and his comments to fully 28 individuals and uh, five different groups of people that Paul knew personally, had relationships with uh, in the course of his uh, 25 years or so of public ministry up to this point in time, 20 years really, and uh, 25 years of knowing the Lord that had now, uh, as he had come across uh, them in, in, uh, in his service to the Lord all across the Roman Empire, they now found themselves uh, in living in Rome and a part of the church there. These personal greetings continue there as we read this morning in verses 21 to 23 where Paul uh, then greeted the church in Rome on behalf of those uh, men who were standing apparently right with him in the pre his presence as this letter was being uh, written, and he greets the church in Rome 
on their behalf as well as the letter was written there in the church uh, in the city of Corinth. He includes a greeting, verse 21, from his right-hand man, Timothy, also from Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater. Uh, they were fellow Jews and uh, probably going to accompany Paul uh, with the offering from the Gentile churches to uh, the, the poverty-stricken uh, Jewish believers in the city uh, of Jerusalem. He mentions, uh, mentions Tertius, and, uh, and actually doesn't mention it. Paul then allows Tertius, who was the scribe or the secretary, Paul dictated the letter of Romans to a secretary who then wrote that letter, and he allows Tertius uh, to add his own personal greeting to them. If you ever want to confuse people uh, the, about uh, in, in the conversation and ask them who uh, wrote the, uh, uh, the book of Romans, everyone will almost exclusively and universally say uh, the apostle Paul did, and then you can... Uh, correct them and inform them that it was Tertius. He was the secretary, but then don't expect anyone to talk to you uh, for the rest of uh, the evening. He mentions Gaius, who was a member of the church there in Corinth, who was known for hospitality, Erastus, uh, a prominent government official that had come to know the Lord there in Corinth, and then he also uh, mentions a greeting from Cortus, uh, a brother. And then Paul does something very interesting, at least it is to me, in, in, in this letter, and that right in the middle of this wonderful love fest that uh, really uh, chapter 16 of the book of Romans is, uh, Paul now includes what can appear to be almost a jarring warning against false teachers and uh, false teaching. And it's almost as if, it can almost seem as if Paul kind of awkwardly uh, shoehorns it as kind of a final random thought before he uh, closes the letter. But of course, we know that can't be true because the letter isn't being authored by the Apostle Paul, but by the Holy Spirit uh, himself. I don't think this is any accident at all uh, that Paul and that the Holy Spirit includes this warning in uh, precisely this place uh, in the letter. And I don't think that it's unlikely at all that Paul was thinking about uh, all of these blessings of, uh, of uh, the Christian friendships that he had and what Christian friendships mean to all of us, uh, the blessings of having a healthy church to be able to uh, attend, that supernaturally his mind then goes to one of the great enemies of those uh, priceless things, and that is uh, false teachers and false teaching. And certainly the Apostle Paul had seen his fair share of this kind of, of stuff. Almost everywhere that Paul went to plant a church, he was either accosted and, and, uh, and confronted by false teachers while he was in that city uh, itself, or after he left that city with the church planted to then move to the next city to plant the next church, that Judaizers would go in behind him and with false teachers and teaching try to overthrow uh, the simplicity, the beauty, the relationship, the health uh, of, of that church. And, uh, and as, he w as he continued in his missionary uh, journeys, most often the Judaizers were the ones that were uh, the principal culprits related to all of this, teaching that uh, Christians also needed to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses in order to uh, be saved. But there were other false teachings that went on as well. There were those that came into the church at uh, Thessalonica and were teaching that the rapture had already occurred. There were those in the church of Corinth itself that was uh, teaching that uh, there was and is no resurrection uh, from the dead. And, uh, and, and so uh, these were the things that he was well aware of, these kind of people. In his public ministry, Jesus himself was uh, constantly resisted, uh, not supremely by the common man, uh, not even supremely by the out-and-out -out pagan, but he was continually resisted by uh, the Jewish religious leaders of his day, principally the Sadducees uh, and the Pharisees and the scribes about whom he said in Matthew chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, one convert, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Ouch. And, uh, and yet it was true. The damage done by false teachers and false teaching. Jesus warned us as Christians in the Sermon on the Mount, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Clearly Jesus had a very low view of false teaching and false teachers. The fact of the matter is that each and every one of us is Christians. We hold our faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of a great sea of religious error and heresy that claims to be Christian but is not. That is the reality of every single one of us as we endeavor to walk with the Lord, as we endeavor to serve uh, the Lord. And I think the doctrinal error now is so prevalent within Christendom, what calls itself Christian, uh, Christianity, so prevalent within Christendom in the United States that I find even as a pastor it's very difficult to keep up with it. So many new winds of doctrine, new heresies, new uh, lies and, and uh, uh, that, that are, are being taught. And as Jesus taught, it seems, in that parable of the mustard seed where the mustard uh, seed is planted and it grows into a great tree, abnormal grew, growth for a, a mustard plant. And it becomes so great that the birds of the air that represent evil now find a place uh, to nest in it. And the idea that the kingdom of God, what professes itself to be Christianity, one day will reach a place where its great concern is, uh, is, is not purity, but rather uh, to be large. And uh, then the church accommodating every kind of error and uh, so much so that it's becoming, I think, increasingly harder for someone. I think in my mind, the ease of, of finding a church to come to and learn the truth about Jesus Christ and grow as a Christian uh, these, you know, 40 years ago or whatever it was when I became a Christian. And now I wonder if people wake up in the morning and they say, there's got to be something more to life than this. I'm going to uh, go to a church that represents itself as Christian and and, uh, and, and find out the truth about this and how much harder all of that I I is happening. To find a place to hear that truth and to be saved and then grow under healthy doctrine. And, and uh, we have to be very careful as Christians uh, to, yes, we need to be loving, we need to be winsome as representatives of Christ, but also to understand uh, that that winsomeness and that love is never to express itself in the accommodation of either false teachers or false teaching. And we have to re resist in doing this the great conforming influence of the culture around us in, in this regard. And the great religion of the culture uh, that we live our Christian lives in the midst of is tolerance. And we are witnessing the, the foolishness of this tolerance of anything in everything as our culture is tolerating itself into catastrophe. And we have to remember as Christians that there is something called truth. And truth must always be intolerant of evil if in error. If in no other place, it must be that in, in the Christian's heart and in the body of Christ uh, as a whole. And uh, lest we be swallowed up by uh, lies and error as well. And as important as this is to understand uh, that there is truth and to understand it on a secular level, it's even more important to understand it on a spiritual level because the stakes are e eternal in their consequences. We don't have uh, the, the freedom to budge on the truth of God's Word in order to uh, gain the popularity of the world or the applause uh, of, of the world or to be accepted by the world. And so again, it has to be done with the right spirit, but it is always an expression of love 
to make a stand for truth. Now, it is important to understand that uh, elsewhere, Paul is given uh, uh, instruction to the leaders of a church on how to deal with these kind of people, false teachers and divisive people. He wrote to Titus and he said, reject the device of man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning and self-condemned. But what Paul does here now as he closes this uh, letter to the church in Rome is he speaks now to us as individual Christians. And, and this is how we are to handle false teachers and teaching. Because what good does it do if the leaders keep a church doctrinally pure and God-honoring if we as Christians do not then individually do the same in uh, our private lives away from church? So he tells us, here are the marks of those we are to avoid. Verse 17, first and foremost, uh, they teach or they advance false teaching that is contrary uh, to the teaching uh, that we find in Scripture. And this kind of thing absolutely abounds today. Uh, for example, people who represent themselves. I don't know, I, I know they're not the majority, but they're growing in, in numbers by uh, the generation. You have people who represent themselves as Christians who uh, readily seek to redefine biblical marriage away from the union of a man and a woman or to seeking to legitimize uh, sexual sin that the Bible clearly condemns, whether that sin is uh, homosexual or whether it is uh, heterosexual, uh, teaching uh, that salvation is based upon uh, human works and human effort as opposed to uh, being received by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is uh, among one of the many heresies or one of the many errors that marks uh, the Jehovah Witnesses. Uh, it also marks the Mormons as well. It is also uh, is a problem that I have with Roman Catholicism because while individual Catholics may believe differently, you may not realize that the official stand of the Roman Catholic Church is that salvation is achieved on the basis of putting one's faith in Jesus and then in keeping their seven sacraments. And their official stand is not that you put your faith in Jesus for salvation on the basis of God's grace alone. And then now you keep the sacraments as an obedient response uh, in light of the fact that you have been saved. But the teaching is that it is necessary for a person to keep the sacraments in order to be saved. That runs completely contrary to Jesus' words on the cross concerning our salvation when he said, it is finished. He has supplied mankind with a finished salvation, not a salvation that we add anything uh, to, as if anything could be added to it without marring it and without making our salvation uh, insecure uh, as a result. And I'm very well aware, I mean, some of you have already tightened up in your seat. And so I, I know I, I run the risk of being misunderstood in, in bringing up Roman Catholicism uh, here. So I want to be very careful not to be uh, misunderstood. I certainly don't put them in the same category of Mormons and Jehovah uh, Witnesses. But I am not saying that there are not many, many Christians in Roman Catholicism. There are. I, I know many of them uh, personally, and, uh, uh, but they are saved in spite of Roman Catholicism's teaching on salvation, not because of it. And I bring this up because it's important for us as Christians to realize that this is not okay. Uh, it isn't okay to go along, to get along on the issue of how men and women and children are saved 
or to in any way fiddle with the completed work of Jesus Christ in providing uh, salvation. And I don't care how big the church is, I don't care how long it's been around, it is not okay to teach a works-based salvation. In the gospel, God's invitation to mankind to be saved on the basis of grace through faith in His Son is the single greatest piece of news that any human being will ever hear in their lifetime. Their eternities hang on the, in the balance on the basis of what they do with that offer that has been extended to them uh, by God. And it is indescribably critical to declare a clear biblical message uh, to them on, on God's behalf. Whenever I ask someone if they are a Christian or they attend uh, church somewhere, you know, in order to begin to direct a conversation spiritually so I can uh, see if this is an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And then someone tells me uh, that, yes, they do uh, attend church, uh, or yes, they do have a, a Christian uh, background, and, and they tell me that they are Catholic. One of the first things I ask them is if they are born again. Have you trusted in Jesus uh, for the forgiveness of your sins, because Jesus said, unless we're born again, we will not enter into the kingdom of God. John chapter 3. So I just float the question out, and I ask to see whether they understand it, or uh, they, uh, what it means, or, or anything, uh, what their response is to it. And then if they give any indication that they're completely unaware of the need to be born again, then I uh, encourage them to do so, and then look to guide the discussion uh, in that way. Because I know once that person is born again, God will take them safely the rest uh, uh, of, of the way. I think probably many of you became Christians out of a Roman Catholic background, and you probably never heard the gospel in its simplicity until uh, it, within that, uh, that structure. It had to be someone who reached you from without or upon leaving uh, that particular uh, uh, institution. So I say all of this, not uh, so you apply what Paul says here uh, to Roma Catholicism, and not only that, that we apply it to what Paul says here to Roman Catholicism and, and its doctrine for your own sake, so that you don't get pulled into that, as Paul says here, but so that we do not in this community and the surrounding communities uh, cease to share the gospel uh, with Roman Catholics or with anyone who represents themselves as a Christian but may not be clear uh, doctrinally in terms of even how uh, to be saved. Now, again, in bringing up Roman Catholicism in this way, I know it is completely politically incorrect uh, to do so. And I could have made my point uh, without it. Uh, but then I, I would have run the risk of the, the warning that is made concerning sermons. And that is, uh, it, it, the, uh, of, uh, the, in, in preaching a sermon, uh, avoiding the accusation that if it was a poison, it couldn't hurt anyone. And if it was a medicine, it couldn't help anyone. So we need to talk about what, what is around us and to have legitimate examples of how timeless what Paul is speaking about here is. And there's much that we could pick at in terms of Protestantism as well. It certainly is very important to avoid the prosperity doctrine as it's taught in Protestantism today and mostly in Pentecostal uh, circles. This prosperity doctrine, it's had a resurgence in recent years. It was like all of the main, uh, uh, you know, the, the faces of that particular movement are getting older and, and passing off the scene. Uh, but new younger faces with, with even more charisma are now uh, taking up the flag and the mantle and, and, and moving it uh, forward. And this uh, prosperity doctrine known as the health and wealth doctrine or the word of faith movement teaching that health and wealth is the divine right 
of every Christian. But not only does that doctrine not only fly in the face of the Scriptures, but it flies in the face of, of the very life and death of Jesus Himself. You might have seen uh, uh, the health and wealth doctrine, it works, but for a very small group of people, mainly those at the top. Uh, you might have seen the article this last couple of weeks where uh, one of the probably the single great spokesman and, and uh, uh, proclaimer of this particular truth, his net worth was exposed uh, of $760 million. $760 million million dollars. That's how wealthy he has become off of this particular doctrine. Five uh, jets. So there, there are people that get wealthy in the midst of this, uh, but not everybody gets wealthy in it. The second mark of those that we're to avoid is that uh, it, it is when their teaching contrary to the Word of God results in divisions. And so their purpose is to uh, divide a church it is, uh, uh, or to separate an individual from their church in order to gain their, uh, their own following. And this, of course, it will inevitably occur related to false teaching and false teachers because all false doctrine has already divided itself from what the Bible teaches. And, and thus it will always produce division among people because it will call people to also divide away from churches, from family members, from uh, other Christians who are uh, firmly founded upon uh, biblical truth as well. Third, he tells us that their teaching contrary to the Word of God causes offenses. And the word offenses there, it literally means uh, a trap or a cause for stumbling. And these false doctrines that are to be avoided, they uh, can include legalism or Phariseeism. Uh, and this is the teacher or the Christian who makes the commandments or the teachings of the Bible more demanding than they already are. The legalist or the Pharisee looks at the Word of God and says, if God commands one X, then ten X must be ten times better. But God doesn't want the help, and He doesn't need the help. His Word is perfectly balanced, and He doesn't want His commandments to be taken any further than they're, they're represented in the, the Word of God. And so uh, the legalist, the Pharisee, is to be uh, avoided because they end up stumbling people because as Jesus taught concerning the Pharisees, it only results in these kind of people putting burdens upon people that they simply cannot carry, they cannot live uh, under. The Sadducee on the other end of the spectrum is the theological uh, liberal who endeavors to explain away uh, all of the demands of Scripture, uh, the hard things that Scripture uh, calls us to and clearly calls us to in order to make the Scriptures less demanding uh, than they are. And so, again, we see much of this today in, uh, in uh, theological liberalism where uh, the watering down of the Bible stand related to marriage or concerning sexual sin or really all sin altogether. But all of this ends up stumbling the person that follows that kind of a false teacher because it leads people then into needless temptations and it then leads them even into the bondage of the sins that God's Word is intended uh, to protect us from. And so God, again, He doesn't need any help from either uh, the legalist or the liberal. He doesn't need it from the Pharisee or the Sadducee. His Word is perfect as it's represented in His Bible. He makes mention of their methods there in the latter part of verse 18. They deceive people by smooth words and flattering uh, speech. These people, uh, the most effective ones, really know how to talk. Uh, they really know how to preach. They really know how to talk to people individually. They know how to read people. Uh, they know how to size you and me up uh, almost immediately and, and, uh, and, and how to uh, con us even uh, religiously 
We've got the old saying concerning a, a certain kind of a, a salesman uh, that, boy, he or she can sell ice to an Eskimo. And in other words, they can sell something to someone who doesn't even remotely need it. And, and of course, no Christian needs uh, any more than what we already have as is revealed in the Word of God. But somehow these people convince us uh, that we do. And flattery is a very uh, slippery stuff. It's just slimy stuff. And uh, I remember hearing a pastor talk about the slime of flattery early in my Christian life. And when I start to feel like I'm hearing flattery from someone as they're trying to move me someplace, I feel slimy. It always comes right in, into my mind. And, uh, and it, but it, people use it because, and they use it because it's powerful stuff. I mean, each of us in our own way, it's just matter in terms of, it's just an issue of degree, uh, you know, how much so. But we're a sucker for flattery on, on some level. It causes us to kind of lower our, ga- our guard, to think this person is for me, or here's someone that finally understands me. Here's somebody who finally knows what, when I'm, what I'm like, when all, the, uh, all they're really doing is setting me up now uh, to make me another uh, a notch in their, their belt. In the, the, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, in, in the city of Colossae, the, the Gnostics, they came to people, and they were coming to the Christians within the church and saying something like, uh, and the Gnostics were kind of a deeper life club. So they'd come to a Christian and they would identify, they know how to see certain kinds of people, and they'd say, I can see that you love God more than the average person does. And I see that you love the depth of the Scriptures in a way that all those other people in that church really don't. And we have a special Bible study on Tuesday evenings for people like you, and, and uh, the, come on over and become uh, a, a, a part of it. And, uh, and you're serious about God in a way that the rest of these people aren't, aren't serious. And we're suckers for this kind of stuff, and they know how to use it and then see how uh, we respond. I have a friend named Lee Shaw. He's a chaplain in Napa, California. He led my wife... Uh, to the Lord, so he'll always be a, a, a big name and a good name in my heart. But Lee used to kid around and, and uh, about this thing of flattery. I've never forgotten it, but if you ever said anything nice to him, he would always follow it with, uh, so what else have you noticed about me? <laughs> and it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek, but I mean, it's like if people are flattering us, it's like, well, let's not stop there. What else if uh, you're on a roll here? Uh, but we like it. And, uh, uh, but uh, these kind of people know that, and they know it causes us to, to uh, drop our guard. There is no deeper Christian life than the, the one that we see in the Scripture. You notice that they use uh, smooth words, Paul says, flattering words, but they're not uh, God's words. It it can be shocking to realize, I remember reading a statistic years ago, that fully 80% of uh, all converts to Mormonism uh, come from a church background. Uh, They had some exposure uh, to Christianity in the course of of their lifetime, but they never learned their Bibles, and they made themselves susceptible to that deception. And so… Uh, it's important we look and say, well, how dumb can you be, you know? And nobody would become a Mormon after, you know, studying the Scriptures. And yet Paul takes this exhortation in terms of false teachers and false teaching, and he writes it to a rock-solid church, a church that he says nothing bad about in all 16 chapters of this letter. So what's he communicating? No matter how much we know, no matter how deeply founded we are in the Word of God, that this is something in the kind of person and the kind of doctrine that it's important that we avoid. He tells us about their motivation in the early part of verse 18. He says that though they give the appearance of spirituality, uh, they don't really serve the Lord Jesus, but but they'll, they, they represent themselves as such because, I mean, that gives legitimacy uh, to them, 
but what they're really all about is their own belly. And, the, and what Paul is talking about is not their actual gut or their uh, belly but, or tummy, but he's talking about the flesh. He's talking about their sin nature, who and what they are from, uh, from Adam and Eve. They're operating under some fleshly motivation. And usually they want to water down some prohibition in the Word of God because uh, they want to accommodate some sin in their own life and uh, if it's a part of their flesh. And because misery loves company, uh, they want to indoctrinate people to then follow them on, on that path as well. They can do it out of a motivation of love for popularity or the applause of people or desire for power. There can be a lot of motivations that comes under the banner of, of their belly. But they don't do it out of a sincere desire of their love for God or their love for God's people. Always when you're talking about a false teacher and false teaching, uh, the flesh is in play. Uh, you have something carnal and very dark always in play in that situation. It's serious uh, business. He tells us in verse 17 how we are to respond to them. And he says, first of all, we are to mark them. In other words, we're to identify them. Uh, just a can of orange spray paint, a dot right here on their forehead, uh, not literally, but in your mind, would uh, be of some help. In other words, uh, we are uh, to identify someone who is a false teacher, identify them as a, a false teacher, and Paul is saying, and then keep your eye uh, on them. There's absolutely nothing unspiritual or unchristlike about uh, identifying divisive people or false teachers, whether in a church or anywhere, in our own living room, watching Christian television perhaps. Uh, nothing wrong with it at all. Paul did it, and G Jesus himself addressed it. Paul said further, the second thing that we are to do is we are to avoid them, not only in the context of a local church, but to avoid them in the forms uh, uh, that all the different forms that media takes today in terms of watching on uh, television or listening on the radio or downloading podcasts or any uh, reading the books or the literature that sometimes are left on our doorstep or whatever it might be. These kinds of people and these kinds of doctrines have always been around. And they're going to be around until the Lord himself uh, brings all of it to an end. And when Paul says, listen, avoid this, he doesn't tell us to fix it. He doesn't tell us to, you know, to, that we're going to be able to drive these people out. In fact, the, there's always tares being sown among the wheat. And one of Jesus' parables speaks uh, about uh, uh, not uh, going there uh, related to it. But there should be the realization in our lives as Christians is that we are not going to be able to fix this. And again, I think Paul is speaking specifically to you and I as individual Christians. You're not going to make the world right in this regard. Uh, you're not going to, to uh, bring this to a stop it's, it, it, or set uh, these people straight necessarily uh, for the most part. And there is a place for confronting, there is a place for rebuking uh, these kind of people, but the best course of action for most Christians is to just steer clear of their influence, go on about your own personal walk and relationship with the Lord, and just enjoy the, the joy and the peace of, of all of that. Now, there are some Christians that uh, so you don't have to become an expert in every false teaching that uh, uh, identifies itself as, as Christian. Uh, you could spend your entire Christian life doing that and never worship the Lord in song the way that we have. It's, it's, God calls certain people to an apologetics ministry, and this is what they do. And they're called and they're gifted uh, to do that and to engage these people biblically but it isn't necessarily for everyone. And you should never feel uh, guilty uh, to just look and say, what I do concerning this is, is I avoid them. 
Now, for me personally, uh, almost nothing excites me more in life than to see a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon coming to my doorstep. And uh, because for some reason I have a fasten, I've, I've, but I've understood where they're coming from and I understand what the scriptures have to say about it. And I love their souls. I don't love their doctrine. But I want to put something of God's word into, the, into their heart and mind and let, give some, the Holy Spirit something to, to work with. But I understand completely the person who sees them come to their door and they never go to answer it. And they're not going to run the risk of getting, uh, you know, immersed in, in the false doctrine that's going to immediately come forth in 30 seconds uh, from them. And, and Paul uh, says this is what, there's no problem with it and we are, we are to avoid them. Paul continues with a call to, in verse 19, to be wise concerning good and uh, simple concerning uh, evil. Uh, in other words, the church in Rome had a good reputation for being obedient to the Word of God. And that's a tremendous reputation uh, for a church to, to have. And in this, Paul gave them, and he uh, gave us in this exhortation, a, a simple and, and yet profound key uh, to assuring that that reputation uh, for being obedient to the Word of God, that that should uh, stay intact. And he says, the way to do that is to be wise concerning good and to be simple concerning evil. And it's worthy of its own sermon. It's worthy of a series of sermons, that one exhortation uh, alone. But you notice it has two commands. It isn't merely uh, enough uh, to be simple concerning evil. Uh, but my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength is also to be growing and always growing as a Christian in the exploration of, the experience of what the Bible defines as good. Can't help but think about uh, Paul's encouragement at the end of his letter to the church at Philippi in this regard. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And I think it's important to allow this, and I exhort myself first and foremost to really examine our lives here this morning in a world in which the exploration of evil has been made so easy for us. It's been brought so near to us, not only uh, in the coming and going of our daily lives, but in terms of technology and the ability to explore evil and to be exposed to evil and to become wise in, in evil. And all of it uh, sits uh, before us uh, uh, right with uh, pushing a button on our keyboard or with a remote within our hand or, or the download uh, off of... Uh, of, of the internet and, uh, and to look at this in terms of music and books and television and websites and movies and, and so forth. And God forbid that any of us as Christians are on the wrong side of this call to be wise concerning good and simple concerning evil, that our lives would be spent becoming wise concerning evil and flipping the whole thing, our lives being spent becoming uh, wise concerning evil and simple uh, concerning good. And if that's the case in the privacy of our own heart here this morning, we'd say, you know, uh, not in terms of where I am in church, but in the privacy of my life, if I were to look at it in, in, in terms of the sowing and reaping process uh, of my life on, uh, in, in the... In, in that privacy of my life, a, a far greater amount of time is being invested 
uh, in becoming wise about evil, uh, even if I don't partake in it, but to become wise concerning evil. And I spend comparatively small amount of time in becoming wise uh, about good. And maybe you can look back on your own Christian life and say, early in my Christian life, it was all about remaining simple concerning evil and uh, being, becoming wise concerning good. But as the years go on in the Christian life, that kind of thing can flip, and we can feel like we've invested enough in our knowledge of good, and why not find out uh, what else is happening out there? And it flips very, very easily, and it has to be something that we need to be careful of. And if that's you or that's me this morning, we need to stop and we need to repent of that kind of a life because uh, we reap what we sow in life, and there are no exceptions for that at all. You've probably heard the old saying, it's certainly appropriate here, sow a thought and reap an action. Sow an action and reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. It is always true. We uh, reap always what it is uh, that we sow. And, uh, and if you find yourself, or I find myself this morning, and you are uh, in the middle of that progression concerning evil, sowing a thought and reaping an action, and now an action, reaping a habit, now a habit, uh, and now it's influencing my character, and now uh, the character is going to uh, ultimately affect my destiny and my uh, testimony then the importance of stopping that today. But it is wonderful to realize, and I think that so often that quote is used in terms of a warning against what is evil, but it is equally true uh, concerning uh, the exploration of good. Sow a thought and reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit, reap a habit. Uh, sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character and reap uh, a destiny. It is a wonderful progression when it is applied to uh, good. So each of us this morning, uh, we are uh, making ourselves wise in something. We spend all of our lives, every portion of our days, we are making ourselves wise about something, something that is the great interest of our uh, lives. The only question is, uh, what are we making ourselves wise in, good or evil? And Paul warns and he exhorts us to be wise concerning good and simple concerning evil. He closes with an encouragement concerning Satan, uh, that Satan, and, and he is of course behind all of this stuff, that one day he is going to be crushed and his place and all of this is going to be uh, brought to an end. But why does Paul bring the devil up again in, in, in terms of this context of false teachers and teachings? It's because he's the ultimate source behind all false doctrine. You're not playing with just a false teacher. It's not just an image on a screen. It's not just a download of, of, of a sermon. Uh, it isn't just a booklet. There is a tentacle that reaches all the way back to the devil. Whenever it is a lie that is being put forward in the name of Christianity that contradicts the Word of God. But Paul wants them to know, he wants us to know that ultimately all of this is going to come to an end. God wins and uh, truth is ultimately going to prevail completely and our fight against false doctrine is going to come to an end. The devil will be judged and he's going to be crushed and for that we say hallelujah. But for now, we need to heed Paul's instruction concerning false teachers and uh, false doctrine. And so this morning, let each of us ask ourselves whether we are heeding Paul's uh, call to avoid those who are false teachers and carrying uh, false teaching or who create uh, division uh, and, and put stumbling blocks be, before us. And it's a very, very simple question to examine our life. Am I tapped into error 
false teaching and false teachers anywhere in my life, and then to respond to it honestly if I, if I have become so, and then do exactly what Paul calls us to do here, and that is to avoid it. Now, if you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, or this is maybe your first experience in church, I mean, it can be, and think, boy, do they talk about stuff like this every week? Yeah, just about. Uh, I, I could say, no, this is very, very rare, and uh, come back, and uh, we spread, spread flower petals all over the place and put angel dust in your hair, and this is a really fun place. Now, we just head through the Scriptures, and we take on whatever it is that uh, comes next. But for you, you've been respectful, and you've li listened to the sermon. But for you, the great issue is how to be saved and to hear the truth about that. And to hear the truth about that, we can't go any greater place than to the Savior Himself. And Jesus' message to you this morning is this, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you can receive the forgiveness of sins, be saved, and enter into a personal relationship with God and leave with the confidence that when this life is over, you will one day be in heaven and receive all of it and more as a gift by simply trusting in the Savior and in the salvation that pleases heaven and pleases God the Father. And if you'd like to do that this morning, there will be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they would love to pray with you. If you need prayer, all of us, if you need prayer for anything this morning, they would love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand now, and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank You for this warning in Your Word, uh, a warning coupled with an encouragement. And we pray that by Your Holy Spirit, if any of us have in any way on, in danger of being seduced by a, a false teacher or false teaching at this very moment, that You would use this time in Your Word to uh, cause us to cut off any kind of umbilical cord to anything that is error and anything that is wrong, Lord. And we might not be distracted from exploring the glory and the beauty and the peace and the joy of the real Christianity that we find described in Your Word. Thank You for Your truth, Lord. Thank You for what it produces within our lives. We thank You for what it protects us from. We pray that You would use this time this morning as a protection in each of our lives, not only today, but through the remainder of our pilgrimage. Use it to keep us safe. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.